Welcome to the Waukesha Bible Church Podcast. We believe the Bible tells a single story, and at the center of that story is Jesus. If you like what you hear today, additional sermons, teaching sessions, and written material can be found on our website at waukeshawbible.org. We hope you enjoy today's episode. Scripture reading this morning is from Exodus 20, verses 1 through 17. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Please be seated. Thank you, Joseph. Thank you so much for joining us on this Sunday morning. I appreciate the gathering of the family and the opportunity to consider the scripture together as we seek to worship God. A survey taken in 2018 asked the question, are the Ten Commandments still relevant today? The following observations were made, and it was taken between Americans and British people. Americans are more likely than British people to say each of the Ten Commandments are important principles to live by. The poll also found that Americans ages 18 to 29 are less likely than older adults to say each of the commandments are still important today, including the commandments prohibiting stealing, murder, and lying. The study showed that more than 90% of Americans agree that the commandments regarding murder, stealing, and lying remain fundamental standards of societal behavior. Other commandments that enjoy strong majority support include those about not coveting, not committing adultery, and honoring parents. When it comes to the most explicitly religious commandments, the top four, smaller majorities say the commandments concerning idol worship, the name of the Lord, having not having other gods on the Sabbath day, retain a significant importance in modern life. Half of the Americans, 49%, say keeping the Sabbath holy is still important, 
but it's the lowest level of support for any of the commandments. I am somewhat thankful that scripture is not by democracy or common vote. I doubt many of those surveyed were worried about their hermeneutic, how they're to read the Bible, but in principle, the question is still valid. How does something that is bound by time, the Ten Commandments are part of the vassal treaty given to the nation of Israel by God, How does something that is bound by time to a particular people group, the Israelites, transcend the borders of a nation and reach through the trenches of time for our benefit without forfeiting our hermeneutical integrity? So how do we see the Ten Commandments, or rather, how do I see them, and how do I approach the Ten? Thus, I trust that the study itself will endeavor to show how the Ten, in principle, still apply to us today. But before venturing further, let us have a word of prayer. Our Father, we thank you for the opportunity that we do have to study your word. As we think of our brothers and sisters in Niger, Father, we think of those countries where to simply possess the word is criminal or to open the word and gather and read it and hear it taught is criminal. And yet here we are, Father, with a multiplicity of translations without fear of outside persecution and the ability and the opportunity to gather, to love you publicly and to proclaim this word. Guide us in our thinking, capture our hearts. We ask and pray in Jesus' name, amen. What I want to do with the 10 is put them inside of the context of the Old Testament and the nature of covenants inside the Old Testament. When we think of the Old Testament, we should think of several covenants. And concerning the covenants, they fall into two broad categories. We've talked of this often, but I do believe it's necessary to keep it in front of us. You have what are called unconditional covenants, which are called the royal gift covenants. The Abrahamic covenant was a royal gift covenant. There were no conditions attached. This is what God would do for Abraham and his descendants. The Davidic covenant is a non-conditional covenant. And the new covenant that you and I are a part of, we're New Testament believers, we're new covenant believers, is a unconditional covenant. We're recipients of a royal gift. Then you have what are called conditional covenants or the vassal treaty. The vassal treaty is the Adamic covenant. Don't eat of this tree. If you eat of this tree, you will die. That's conditional. The Mosaic covenant, which the ten words, and I'll talk about the ten words in just a moment, but the ten words being the preamble to the bulk of that covenant is a vassal treaty. If you disobey the Mosaic code, you will die. And because they disobeyed the Sabbath part of the Mosaic code, they went into exile for 70 years. We noted that in the book of Isaiah. The reason why they were in exile is because they violated the conditions of the vassal treaty, the Mosaic code. So you have these two ideas of a vassal treaty and of a royal gift. What's interesting for me as a new covenant believer is that I am no longer under these conditions. Tragically, many New Covenant or New Testament believers think and act as if they are under a vassal treaty, that their relationship with God is conditional, that if they do their part, then God will do his. They fail to understand or believe that in Christ, every condition has been met and gives them freely all things because of Christ, the condition fulfiller. So you and I are under no conditions. We are in Christ, and as such, we benefit from his obedience, which has been imputed to our account. The second type of covenant beyond the vassal is this royal gift. And as I've just stressed, the royal gift is a non-conditional covenant. The audience of the royal gift receive from their superior, God, gifts. 
There are no conditions attached. The gospel is a royal gift. Thankfully, amen. God generously gives the unspeakable gift of Christ to his people. No conditions demanded, no strings attached. The idea of salvation in all of its parts, which we consider to be justification, sanctification, and glorification, is described as a gift received throughout the New Testament. We're familiar with passages like Romans chapter 6, verse 23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God. That's speaking to the royal gift nature of the new covenant. Ephesians 2, 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. John chapter 1, verse 11, but as many as received him, them, him to them gave he the power to become the sons of God. We're gifted salvation. Now, when you go back to the Garden of Eden, the first you shall not eat was a conditional covenant with Adam. The law of Moses was a conditional covenant, whereas the covenant with Abraham and Noah were unconditional, as is the new. And we are under the new covenant where there are no conditions. God acts on us and we believe and receive the promise. The Ten Commandments are a part of the law of Moses, which is a vassal treaty. So when we talk about the Ten Commandments, it's actually part of this vassal treaty that God makes with the nation. But when you look at the law of Moses, which is begun in Exodus 19 and runs all the way through Leviticus, when you look at that, the preamble, the introduction to the whole constitution or law are the Ten Commandments or the Ten Words. Aaron Reich of the Jerusalem Post in his short article, What Are the Ten Commandments in the Bible? And he's answering this for the Jewish people, makes the following observation. He says, I quote, broadly speaking, there are two points that are widely agreed upon regarding these rules among the Jewish people. The first is this, that there are two divisions. The first division, the first four commands or words are addressing the vertical, our relationship before God or God with us. The second six are dealing with the horizontal, our relationship with one another. So when you look at the 10 words, there are two divisions, love God, love one another. The first four address the vertical, the following six address the horizontal. And he makes the statement that among the Jewish people, they pretty much all agree on that idea. The second thing that they agree on is the severity of the Ten Commandments. For the most part, violating any, and I'm quoting him, of the Ten Commandments, assuming there is such a punishment in Jewish law for it, is always a capital offense. In other words, breaking the Ten Commandments would be a death sentence. And in the Torah, in the law, that's what happens when you violate the Ten Commandments. For example, if you are a child and you have parents, which indeed you do, and you do not honor them, you do not respect them, you rebel against them, they have a problem for that. You're put to death. That's why it's imperative, especially in the Old Testament, that children obey their parents. Mr. Reich speaks with uncertainty concerning the assumption of a capital offense, but for the sake of clarity in ancient Israel, if you violate the law, you pay the consequences of the law, and in many ways, and many times, it is capital. Now, when Exodus 20 opens, when you follow the narrative from Genesis 1 all the way through, and you read Exodus, the nation of Israel is in the land of Egypt, they're in bondage and slavery, they're delivered, you have an Exodus, the ten plagues, parting of the Red Sea, Passover lamb. They then come to Exodus 19, uh, Mount Sinai, and that's where they receive this law, this covenant with God. You have a vassal treaty established. 
And we'll see how, when you look at it, the first four, as we've already noted, address the vertical. The second six address the horizontal. When you then read the law, you have ceremonial, which is the priesthood and the sacrificial system. The ceremonial aspect of that law addresses the vertical. The civil law, which is how we deal with one another, address the six following commandments or the following words. Our primary focus this morning is simply considering the place of the Ten Commandments. Now, you'll often hear me speak of the Ten Words. We speak of the Ten Commandments, but they're actually in the Hebrew Ten Words. That's how they're referred to. And I sometimes default and simply say the Ten Words. And what I mean by that are the Ten Commandments, but can, that word commandment has more syllables, so I just go with words. So in Exodus chapter 34, verse 28, it says, and he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the ten words. It's the Hebrew word for, it's the plural form of the word word. And then Deuteronomy 4.13, he declared to you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform. That is the ten words. And then Deuteronomy 10.4, and he wrote on the tablets in the same writing as before, the ten words. So even though I say the ten words, I'm speaking of the ten commandments. It's just easier to say ten words. And the words are these Ten Commandments. So when you look at the Ten Commandments, they're really reflecting God's character. The law does not begin morality. We sometimes think in the law of Moses, we only know not to because it says so. Well, in the law of Moses, it only legislates morality to a nation. The Ten Words existed before Mount Sinai. At Mount Sinai, they were simply written down or codified. For example, when Adam and Eve eight of the tree, they violated multiple commandments. So it wasn't simply eating of the tree. They were violating principles of the Ten Commandments. They were not loving God. They were not loving humanity, each other. For example, when Cain killed Abel, he broke the law, even though there was no written law to be broken. And prior to the flood with Noah, humanity was breaking the Ten Words. They were in violation of all Ten Principles even without those principles or words being written at Mount Sinai. So when we come to Mount Sinai and you have this preamble, it's simply reflecting a law or laws or principles that have existed from Adam on, onward until it's codified as a preamble, then it's explained to the nation through those two venues of ceremonial and civil what they were supposed to do under contract, under this constitution. So the ten words that you and I read in Exodus 20 summarize the most fundamental commandments. And the most fundamental commandments, when we get to the New Testament, I think it should become apparent. But when we come, when we read the ten words, the two most fundamental commandments are love God and then love one another, love your neighbor. And that order cannot be breached. That connection cannot be severed. You cannot love your neighbor properly without first loving God. And if you love God, you will love your neighbor. That's what the New Testament will tell us. So the order that you have in the Ten Words is simply reflecting principles that have gone from Adam, and you'll see it as we go through Christ. And when the nation of Israel had this law given at Mount Sinai, that law simply explained what they were to do in relationship to loving God and in relationship to loving one another. Fortunately for us, the law in its entirety has been answered by Christ. Not just the ceremonial, not just the civil, but also the moral 
the ten words. The new covenant believer, you and me, are not under the conditions of the law made with Israel. Jesus Christ has fully met all of the conditions and in so doing removes for us all of the condemnation inherent within the broken law. That's when you and I read Romans chapter 8 verse 1. It says, there's therefore now no... It's referring to what, what has built up to that point is you and I in Christ, the commandment keeper, has kept for us the law. He has fulfilled it. And as a consequence, we are no longer living under broken law. We face no condemnation. When Jesus says, love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself, which we'll note in Mark 12, it's in the synoptics, all three gospels, he is encapsulating the 10 words. And the entire New Testament then explains what loving God and loving your neighbor looks like. But the most fundamental element in all of it is love God and love your neighbor. That's how this works. So when we look at the structure, we have stressed already how the first four commands or four words inside of Exodus 20 are addressing the vertical, you and God. Have no other God before me. And then the horizontal. Honor your parents. Don't steal. Don't commit adultery. Don't kill. Keeping Sabbath. And I'll, I'll note how of the ten words, all nine of the ten are repeated in the New Testament just by way of observation. The only one not repeated is Sabbath-keeping. What does that mean for us today? But let's look at the actual structure of the ten words. Verses 1 and 2 in Exodus 20 form for the ten words a prologue. Listen to what it says. And God spoke all these words saying, I am Yahweh your God. And again, consider the context in which it's stated. I am Yahweh your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So you have this prologue, and then you have love Yahweh your God, verses 3 through 11. Then love your neighbor, verses 12 through 17. Then, there, then there's a last word, an epilogue at the end. The last word is important because it's part of a bookend. Exodus 19 says, they saw Mount Sinai and they trembled. They are then given 10 words, and the nation trembles. And I'll comment on that in just a moment. But let's begin with the prologue, verses 1 and 2. Notice what it says. In the prologue, you have this idea that I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Yahweh crushed all other gods, and Yahweh redeemed his people from Egyptian slavery and for Edom freedom. You have to have the one before you can have the other. You have to have this redemption before you enjoy this freedom. And unless you have the prologue, which is God saving you, the commandments themselves are without power. They're only doable through force. But we're not in that context any longer. But let's begin with the prologue. We have this prologue of redemption, of God crushing and redeeming his people from Egyptian slavery and freeing them to live in the promised land. And then you have the commands one through four, calls to love Yahweh. So let's note the vertical, love the Lord your God. It begins by saying, you shall have no other gods before me. Think of the context in which this passage is being stated. He had just destroyed all Egyptian gods and he's going to destroy all the Canaanite gods. You know, we often struggle when it says in our text, I am the Lord your God, you shall have no other God, small letter G, before me. We struggle with this idea of the occurrence of gods in the Bible. 
But these gods, and I'm going to say these gods, and every time I say these gods, have a small lowercase g, okay? So I don't have to keep correcting myself or trying to clarify. We have this occurrence of gods in the Bible, but these gods are part of what the Apostle Paul describes as the rulers, the powers, the world forces of this darkness, the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. We are wrestling against, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, and spiritual wickedness in high places. And I just, I always find it interesting. I read the ESV, but I've memorized the King James. So I just quoted to you in the King James, but it says the same thing. These gods are a part of the various strata of created angelic beings. So the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 8, 4 through 6 says, Therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world and that there is no God but one, Yahweh. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods, small letter G, many lords, small letter L, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all are all things and we exist for him, one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things and we exist through him. Such gods are fallen angels created and in subjection to the authority of the one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Of all things created, you have... God, the creator God, and that's what we've seen in Genesis chapter 1. But the first commandment is, you shall have no other gods but me. Secondly, you shall not make for yourself any idol, nor bow down to it or worship it. This was common in both Egypt and Canaan. To any time, any time we leave God, we fall into idolatry. We are singular in whom we worship. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, which I always find somewhat interesting Inside the context, I think we've, we take the name of the Lord in vain when we don't honor him in the first two and then the fourth. But this issue isn't simply using his name inappropriately, but not honoring him by reflecting properly on him or of him. And then the fourth commandment is, you shall remember and keep the Sabbath day holy. And I've noted earlier that of all the ten words, only the Sabbath is not repeated in the New Testament. And part of my historic past was justifying the adherence to the ten through its repetition in the new, uh, but I think there's a bigger principle at play. And the intent of the Sabbath in creation is to remind us of the eternal rest awaiting us in Christ, which is interesting when you think of the seventh day. In Genesis, it does not say the seventh day, day and night, because the seventh day was to be an eternal day of rest. And for us, it'll be... The, the eternal state. But the intent of the Sabbath in creation is to remind us of the eternal rest awaiting us in Christ and, and in the new heavens and earth. It is apparent in the New Testament that Jesus is our Sabbath rest. When, for an Old Testament believer, the ten words were very prescriptive. They were things they had to do. For the New Testament believer, the ten words are descriptive. It's who we are. In a world of supposed inclusiveness and tolerance, we as Christians, as New Covenant believers, are different. We are not under the condemnation of the Ten Words as part of the law of Moses. As his people, we are singular and narrow as to who God is. He is Yahweh. He is Jesus. He is the Holy Spirit. We say something singularly by what we believe and by how we behave. If you have not yet recognized it, we are different than the world in which we live. So you have the first 
four. The first four describe our relationship before God. The second six are the horizontal. The second six are how we love one another. It begins in verse 12. Honor, respect your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. And again, if we went to Deuteronomy 21 and we read verses 18 and 21, children rebelling against their parents was met with death. It was a capital offense. Now, I would argue that they were probably adult children, but remember, at the age of 13, they became members of that law. So it's interesting as well, when Paul uses this in Ephesians 6, the punitive element is removed. But honor, respect your father and your mother. The sixth commandment, you must not commit murder. You must not commit adultery. You must not steal. Doesn't that stuff seem like common sense? You must not give false evidence against your neighbor. You must not be envious of your neighbor's goods. You shall not be envious of his house, nor his wife, nor anything that belongs to your neighbor. You really have, in the ten words, two primary ideas. Love God, love your neighbor. Now, for the Jewish people as a nation, their treaty, their covenant, had both a ceremonial and a civil aspect. And the priesthood and sacrificial system expanded on what they were supposed to be doing in the vertical, and then the civil law expanded on how they were to treat one another. The last thing you then have in verses 18 through 20 is the, the epilogue. You have Israel's response and then Yahweh's intent. When you look at 18 through 20, and let me read it for us, uh, 21. Now, when all the people saw the thunder and flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off. What I'm wanting us to read also is Exodus 19, verse 16. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. And verse 16 of chapter 19 and then chapter 20 verses 18 and following form bookends around the 10 words. The people gathered trembled. They were fearful of what they were seeing. They trembled at the sight of Mount Sinai. You and I tremble for a different reason. We tremble at Mount Calvary, but why? When we see Mount Calvary through the lens of Isaiah 53, which we have done already in the recent past, by the working of the Spirit, we tremble at the magnitude of God's unprecedented grace and unsearchable riches of Christ. When we see Calvary, we see to what extent God went to save us, to do for us what we could have never done for ourselves. This is why we tremble. And then as we pass th this through the cross, we read how Jesus kept the entire law and re removed all condemnation for the believer. The believing no longer fears God punitively. For us, God is our Father, a loving Father. Jesus, as the fulfillment of the seed promise, perfectly keeps the conditions of the vassal treaty and credits to us his obedience, thus making us commandment keepers. We can read the statement, if you love me, keep my commandments. But as New Covenant believers, we read it, since we love him, we keep his commandments. The commandments now describe how we live. Listen to what happens when Jesus is asked the question in Mark chapter 12, verses 28 through 34. What commandment is the foremost of all? I'm going to read for us Mark chapter 12. 
This is in all uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But listen to what it says in verse 28. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Then verse 30. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. If I were to ask you, are you loving God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength, I can assure you you're not. Do you love God? Yes. But you're not loving him with everything you have. And why? Simply because you are fallen. Verse 31, the second then is like this. You shall love the Lord your God as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all your heart, with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. After that, no one dared ask him any more questions. Jesus takes the entire word from God and he wraps it into two fundamental principles. Love God, love your neighbor. Loving God is causal. Loving your neighbor is consequential. In Adam, those without Jesus, all of humanity are lawbreakers and they're all idol makers. But in Christ, we become commandment keepers. For the New Testament church, when we look at the 10 words, it's not an if-then treaty. We're not under a vassal treaty. We're not under conditions. Since we love him, we are keeping his word. Our conformity to the 10 words is caused by his love for us and his spirit in us. They describe who we are. This is what we do. I'm wanting to consider three passages of scripture that will hopefully bring even more clarity to how we view the 10 words because there are no more commandments or imperatives in the New Testament than there are in the law of Moses. So how do we view all of this? But let us consider three simple passages. First John chapter 3, verses 22 through 24. Verse 22, And whatever we ask, we receive from him. And why? Because we keep his commandments, plural, and do the things that are pleasing in his sight. And I, I really believe that 1 John 3.22, much of 1 John has been read and understood improperly so that it places us under bondage rather than giving us the freedom that is rightfully ours in Christ, that he has secured for us. But we have read 22 as if the reason why our prayers aren't answered is because we're not keeping his commandments. And we look at the bulk of the New Testament and we consider where we are in violation and therefore our prayers are unanswered. That's not what this text is saying. So he says, my, keeping my commandments, which are in the plural, then verse 23. This is his commandment. He shifts to the singular. So he says in verse 22, keeping my commandments. Verse 23, this is my commandment. And what is his commandment? That we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another. That we love God, believe, and love one another. Just as he commanded us. Verse 24. The one who keeps his commandments, going back to the plural, abides in him. How do we abide in him? By believing in Jesus. 
There is no condition. Believe. Do you believe? You abide. And he in him. We know by this what he, that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. So when we look at all the commandments, what is the commandment that encapsulates all the commandments? Believe in Jesus. When you believe in Jesus, all the commandments are being carried forward. Romans 8, great passage. As you study Romans 8 in context and you come to chapter 8, verse 1, it then says, there's therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is the fulfillment of the seed promise. He is the second Adam, the true new Israel. He does for them and us what we cannot do for ourselves. As a consequence, we are no longer under the law. We are no longer facing condemnation. Christ takes that for us. But listen to how verses 3 through 4 read. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. He does for us what we could not do for ourselves. Sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh so that with this result, the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. If you are in Christ, you are walking in the spirit. Christ does for us what we could not have done for ourselves. He keeps the law and he imputes that to our account. Thus, we are obedient we are no longer under its condemnation. And then in 1 John 5, jumping back to 1 John, verse 1, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and whoever loves the Father loves the child born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and observe his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. Folks, and his commandments are not burdensome. I always find it interesting If you look at the commandments and you find them overwhelming, you're not reading them through the gospel. The commandments of Christ are not burdensome because the commandments of Christ are singular. Believe in Jesus, and as a result, you love one another. When Jesus says in Matthew 11, verses 28, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And then he describes the yoke that he gives us as light and easy. If we are viewing Christianity as burdensome and heavy and tiring and condemning, we're not allowing the gospel to speak into it. Jesus has done for us what we could never have done for ourselves. He removes the weight. He removes the condemnation. He does for us what we could have never done for ourselves. But when we think of even loving God and loving one another, we cannot do that perfectly. We don't do it perfectly, but they are perfectly kept by Christ in our behalf. Thus, the 10 words describe those in Christ. If you ask me, do I love God? My response would be to you, yes. Do I love him perfectly? No. Do I love you? Yes. Do I love you perfectly? No. But Christ does, and I'm not under the condemnation of breaking those laws, those commandments. So what do we do with these 10 words? Let me offer you three thoughts. First, thank God you are not under the old covenant, but under the new covenant. Christ does for us what we could never have done for ourselves. 
Thank God for the person and work of Jesus Christ. And, and, and really, thank God for Jesus. The second thing is, pray for those who live in violation of God's law. For the wages of sin is always death. Pray for those who find themselves, one, first unsaved. Pray that God will save their soul. And two, there are Christians who are struggling and addicted to sin. Pray that God would give them victory, that they would see how the gospel speaks into it and delivers them from their sin. Because the inherent demerit of sin is death. We often say sin will always cost you more than you want to pay, take you further than you want to go, and keep you longer than you want to stay. Pray for those. Pray for me as each of us struggle in our own areas. Pray. And then finally, the ten words should remind us of just how gracious and merciful God is in the person and work of Jesus. I share with you the ten words because I find the ten words a beautiful thing. I find them beautiful. I find the word of God beautiful. And God invites us to believe him and to take him at his word. Let us celebrate what God has done for us in the person and work of Jesus. And rather than look at them as prescriptions, look at them as descriptions. This is who we are because of Jesus. Please stand with me as we close in prayer. Our Father, I thank you for the opportunity that we have to study together as your people and and just to remind ourselves of how gracious you are to look at the ten words in their relationship to Israel but now to us and how we have one commandment, believe Jesus. And as a consequence of believing Jesus, love one another. Father, we fail often in both accounts And yet we keep coming to the gospel. This is why we need Jesus. We can't, God can, and Jesus did. Thank you, Father, for this time together as your people gathered. In Jesus' name, amen.